Welcome back to the Mediocre Movie Club podcast. I'm John Kissel. With me tonight is Pierce Bauer. What's up? Tonight we are wrapping up our uh, cumulative best of series uh, that we've been doing for the last three months here at the Mediocre Movie Club. Uh, the site uh, We're recording this on a Tuesday night. Uh, the Sight and Sound uh, magazine, British magazine, that releases its once every decade uh, top 250 movies and uh, voted on by critics and then top 100 voted on by directors. They will have released that uh, in two days from when we're recording. And we've been going into our own collective top tens and selecting some of our favorite movies. And uh, this last month, we selected Whiplash and we selected Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, one of those two movies uh, sure doesn't belong on anyone's best of list. Hey, that's just me. We'll find out which of those two movies we're talking about uh, as the podcast continues. We're going to talk about Whiplash first. Whiplash is not one of those two movies. So, you know, classic uh, skeptical exercise. If you picked Whiplash, you need to pick again because now you have a one in three ch- or one in two chance. Uh, Whiplash is a 2014 movie directed by Damien Giselle. It was his second movie after the very small guy in Madeline on a park bench. Uh, this came off of Shane's top 10 list, so he's not with us tonight. Uh, we talked about Whiplash during our Best of the Decade podcast a couple of years ago, uh, but we're revisiting it tonight. Uh, this is a movie about a young drummer at an elite New York music school and his extremely domineering uh, professor slash band leader, student played by Miles Teller, uh, band leader played by J.K. Simmons. Pierce, initial thoughts on Whiplash. Uh, Whiplash is a very good film with two really great performances at the center. Uh, I like Damien Chazelle's directing. I think his movies are ultimately like, you know, all pretty good uh some better than others and this is in the top this is probably my favorite of his yeah he's made uh after this he also made la la land and then he made uh first man which is probably my favorite of his movies although it'd be it, it and whiplash would be really close and then he's got babylon coming out in the next couple months uh it seems like he is very interested in uh great men uh great achievements moon landing uh and and the pursuit of great performances here and then he contrasts that with like these love letters slash poison pills to hollywood i don't know i haven't seen babylon yet uh maybe that movie is not what i think it is but uh here in whiplash he's extremely focused on uh on music performing music at a very high level and just what it takes to achieve anything and as far as damien giselle is concerned it takes uh, a lot of blood and a lot of sweat and a lot of abuse, or does it? I think that's like the most interesting thing in this movie is like, what does the director actually think about what is happening in the movie? Because, you know, we're just going to tear this movie apart from start to finish. And uh, the way it ends is that, and and we'll talk about as well, like how difficult it is to tell if the music is any good or not. But as far as the movie is concerned, uh, after all the abuse that Miles Teller's character Andrew Neiman takes from J.K. Simmons' uh, band leader Fletcher over the course of the movie, he is still able to put together this great drum solo in front of an elite crowd, and he's able to win over a guy who uh, minutes earlier was try- was very aggressively trying to sabotage him, and therefore the movie ratifies Fletcher's uh, teaching, like brute, just brutal and abusive teaching style, uh, which Pierce, I assume, uh, was not part of your curriculum uh, in 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 uh, in in your education school. What do you, what do you, this is what's always stuck with me about this movie is like how do you reconcile all of the abuse that Fletcher puts on Neiman with that great performance at the end? Like, like, are you asking, like, is it, is it worth it? Is that the, yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, that's, that is like the question, right? And I think this is something that is repeated throughout a lot of art is like, does great art have to come from suffering or great pain or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, however you want to phrase it. You know, I personally, like my personal stance on that is like, no, of course not. But sure. I, 
but I I think more of what this movie does, and and frankly, if we want, I don't you know I don't think it spoils anything. But if we want to tie it into like recent release Tar, like Tar also gets into this a little bit of like does you know what what is the cost of great art right or genius or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly think this is like an examination of a reality, which is like this is the process by which a lot of great art does come. Whether that's like justified or not, I mean, like again, like my gut answer is like no, right? You shouldn't abuse people, no matter what the reward is, right? But like, this is the reality of like how a lot of great art is made is through, you know, these torturous acts or like abusive behavior or or even just extreme pressure or like extreme, you know, like there's a there's a version of this movie where like Miles Teller's character in the end, like all you know like there's a version of this figure i guess we could say of like someone who achieves greatness that we applaud for like putting in that effort even if it is like again like an unhealthy immoral almost like level of commitment to something so i i guess it's not a matter of whether of like is this movie like supporting or not even supporting but like is this movie I think it's just depicting what is a reality of the process by which we, we come by great art or like mm-hmm. you know, great figures or genius or auteurs or what, like whatever. Right. Yeah. And it makes sense. And like you said before, like it makes sense. Like this is a repeated somewhat of a repeated theme in Chazelle's work, which is like the idea of like great men accomplishing great things kind of, I guess. I mean, first man for sure. And, like, you could certainly ascribe that, like, La La Land is about someone trying to uphold Jazz legacy, I guess, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Or even Emma Stone's character is, like, someone who is chasing this dream of greatness, you know, but um, and leaving yeah. behind the person she loves to achieve it. You know, I think that's what she's singing about in the end. Um, and this movie, too. So I don't know if this movie ultimately comes down in favor of that. Like, I, I don't think you should walk away from this movie siding with jk simmons character um by any means but i do you know it is a, a a triumph of the filmmaking i guess that that final performance can be read so ambiguously right that like miles teller's act of defiance in the end like his drum solo or you know whatever you call it like that he performs is that him finally like is it him acting against jk simmons's characters like treatment of him or is it him like finally fully realizing like because i think it plays it, it, i didn't rewatch it for this but it's been years but mm-hmm. like it's almost played ambiguously of like is it in defiance or is jk simmons finally respect is it like is, has he finally come into what jk simmons always wanted him to be you know yeah i did i did rewatch it, and that is that is mm-hmm. very much the case right. he neiman very much brings fletcher into his performance and they're both just com- they're both completely exhilarated by the end of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, we don't we hear about his and and there's a lot of context clues within the movie, like how male Fletcher's band is. Mm-hmm. Um, the like the first thing we see him do is single out a trombonist who or for being out of tune, and then after this poor guy has like left the room in tears he tells the rest of the band he wasn't really in tune or he he actually wasn't mm. uh but he should have he should be able to stand up to me so right. therefore the first thing we're seeing him do as a band leader is lie to everybody so it's hard to tell you know when he is and isn't uh in favor of the music and like someone who doesn't listen to a lot of jazz it's also hard for me to tell what is and mm. i don't know if that comes through well i mean you said you haven't seen this in a little bit but as far as like what is and isn't good you do have to rely a lot on the reaction of um the musicians or the characters in the scene uh, and and coming back to like the idea that great art has to come through like great discomfort um uh, the, plenty of movies come to the opposite conclusion of that Mm-hmm. And this, and it could be argued that this movie does as well, like with the character of Paul Reiser, like looking just totally defeated at his son while he's doing this performance. You can read a lot into that, uh, where he's 
you know, like totally forsaking his family and choosing one father figure over the other. Um, but like a director is always going to be a bad, uh, a, a bad vessel for that message. Uh, like someone who is making, you know, hundreds of decisions every day mm-hmm. and wants to create the best thing possible. Like you would never find someone like David Fincher, uh, who I imagine being exactly as inscrutable as J.K. Simmons, like when he's requesting the 75th take on a scene. Like nobody really knows exactly what he wants, but he's just making you do this thing over and over and over again until he's finally satisfied. Was he actually satisfied like an hour ago and he's just making you do this thing over and over again to like establish that he is in fact the person in charge, like he is the god of this arena and you'll do whatever he wants you to do for how long he wants you to do it or i mean who would disagree that a lot of david fincher's movies are in fact great if he was just like some middle of the road hired gun then yeah we could say uh all your all your effort on all the all of your you know quote-unquote abuse people tend well mm-hmm. yes people tend to like working with david fincher um, or at least appreciate the work that they did with him if they, you know, don't want to go back and do anything again. But I mean, if the, if the, if the result is on the screen, then so much the better. And if like the drum solo is in fact good, then all right, fine. <laughs> right. Like no one's going to drum out Fletcher from, uh, this part of his career. Whereas he, where he can be like drummed out of school, uh, because he's, you know, it's like it's a it's a teacher student relationship and is different than like a professional with a professional relationship. Maybe mm-hmm. nobody gives a shit as long as their performance is good. Yeah, I think I think that you know I don't know if that's necessarily in the movie, but that's like certainly I think part of reality. And like Fincher is a good example of that, right? Like you said, like ultimately his movies are good, and the actors who work in them I think come out of it proud of their work, so they're you know, they're accepting of his methods, right? Or, like, Kubrick is another, like, probably the yeah. ultimate example, right? Again, like, I don't know exactly where I come down on that or if I really will ever have a final decision to say on that, but, like, that's certainly part of the reality is, like, that is how people feel. Mm-hmm. And, like, reading into, like, the realism of the movie, uh, like, from actual music people, it's obviously exaggerated, uh, as far as like the body horror of Whiplash, which you know, like as as like a layperson, as a viewer, extremely effective, uh, like mm-hmm. the blood vibrating on the drums and all that, fantastic. Uh, if you had like talked to actual drummers, like you would never act; it would just never happen. Like your fingers wouldn't bleed or anything like that. Drumming does inf- does seem like a extremely difficult thing to do. Uh, maybe not uh, open sores on your hands dripping blood onto the onto the drums difficult but difficult nonetheless it is it it is impressive to see uh these drummers working so hard uh but again as far as like is are they are they great drummers necessarily again it's just hard to tell and i don't think the i don't think the movie goes out of its way to inform you one way or the other you get fletcher and he's introduced as unreliable from the start uh, Shane, Shane is joining us. Sorry, I thought the 9.30 was start time. Oh, that's okay. Uh, I, I apologize. That's okay. Uh, drumming in Whiplash, is it is it good because the movie tells us it is? Or can you, or, or do you think like, yeah, this is some solid jazz that I'm listening to here? That sounds pretty good. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. I mean, they use professional drummers, right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, we were talking. I was sorry, We were talking. Uh, Pierce and I about. Um, can you tell when they're rushing or dragging? No. No. Not. It's all. No. It's all just in uh, Fletcher's head. Yeah. So we pulled this off of your list, and yeah. uh, off of your top ten list. And yeah. I think this was at the top of your best of the decade list when we talked about it earlier as well. Correct. So yeah, uh, we've been going on for a little bit about what what the movie's message is about perfection and effort and ambition. But uh, why don't you jump in and tell us why this is at the top of your at the top of your list? Um, I mean, I just I think it's damn near a perfect movie. It's captivating. Uh, nice and short. Love that. Nice and short to the point. Um, I just don't really feel like there are any wasted moments in this movie. And 
if in and I think it just finishes with such like a, a flurry and intensity. I think we all saw this movie in theaters, which is rare for uh, any yeah. group at the Media Community Club. Some of us are theater goers. Some of us, uh, alas, are not as much as we would like to be. Uh, how I, I remember, I, I saw this in an empty theater when I still lived in Indiana, and uh, I, I had to, you know, I felt winded by the end of of the final of the final scene. Yeah, the, I, I saw this. This is like the first. Time, like Blair went out of town. I feel like it's the first time. What year was this? Twenty fourteen. Yeah. Okay. So it was like the, she took Jeff, and so Jeff was like new, like newborn, right? There's been fall twenty fourteen, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And American Sniper was at the same time. And yep. I wanted to argue with people about American Sniper, <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> Oh, you know, uh, I don't know how that how good of an idea that would have been. Right. I mean, that was back when I was a young man, and and um, a lot of people would camo on uh, in, in the showing that I. Saw well, I didn't American want to go and... argue with them there. I want to argue online. Like, oh, like, I see. Like, like an idiot. Gotcha. And so my idea was, first time I could blurs out of town with a baby, I am going to do the one thing I cannot do, which is go see a movie. I'm going to see two movies. I'm going to see Whiplash first at the Terra, and then I'm going to, then I'm going to go back to Midtown Art Cinema and see American Sniper. R.I.P. Terra. R.I.P. I was done. Terra's closed. Fuck. That's brutal. Yeah. Um. And the end of this movie was so good that I just sat in my seat through the whole entire credits. Yeah, that's fun. Went to my car. That's a John move. And just started looking at stuff on Twitter about it. About drumming. No, not about drumming. <laughs> just like people's reactions. And I'm like, I can't see American Sniper. I just went immediately got, I just like, I just gotta go drink. I feel, I feel so up right now. It was awesome. Uh, <laughs> uh, me and Pierce were catching up on recent movies and, uh, one of the movies, not recent, but relevant to that conversation. Uh, I did the same thing after seeing Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri for the first time. That movie really fooled me. <laughs> and then I watched it one or two more times, like, mm, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I definitely went next door to the ramen restaurant from uh, the Daily Departed Terra and, and tried to sell a bartender on going to see it immediately. Like, maybe duck out on your shift and quit your job so you can go see Three Billboards. <laughs> Do you think you'd give that same advice? Uh, if I like after having seen it again, no, definitely not. Like I, I just got, I it, it totally, it just totally snowed me in uh, in a way that Whiplash also did, but uh, that is more justified. Uh, uh, rewatching Whiplash, I don't feel like I need to go find a bartender at a ramen restaurant and say uh, on second thought. Uh, yeah. I, I, I when it's just so good, and I told her actually at the bar, I was like, you guys should just go see this. Mm. It's so good. Like Whiplash is so good. And I, although I was surprised when I got on Twitter that we talk about ambition, like I, I watched this and I was like, uh, this is bad. This is not how exactly what we're talking about. But is it? And then musicians all over the place like, no, this is so it's so that's what it takes. That's sure. It yeah. Takes. Like we've got a parent of a future concert violinist uh, in our group and not present uh, for this podcast. But I, I, I mean, I wonder. I do wonder uh, just about that kind of life. Well, we were just like finding these tiny, tiny details and comparisons in uh, one player versus another. And like that can make a tremendous amount of difference. Or, I mean, referencing tar, like as you mentioned earlier, Pierce, or something else (laughs) makes a difference as it must. Because how can any one person like make these make these judgments? It's surely all arbitrary. Like in the scene when Fletcher is just rotating between drummers in like a marathon session between three drummers, uh, he's it, it's just purely psychological. Uh, he's just right. he's just berating them to berate them. They're all probably very equal drummers. You know, I'm amongst. Um fellow youth basketball coach champ you know championship level coaches sure so um between the three of us so we know that each kid has a different motivation yeah i've I've chomped on a five dollar basketball medal before in celebration yeah so we know that it takes different (laughs) motivations but i guess like part of me is like feels bad for uh (laughs) the dad where it's just like oh my god i created this and this kid, this he just has, he, yeah, Paul Reiser, the dad to Neiman, he just has no ability to relate to this kid. Uh, Paul, there, there's a great scene 
when Neiman meets Fletcher, or not, not he's met him already, but they're in the hallway. Uh, Neiman has been accepted into Fletcher's band, and they're just making conversation. Fletcher's being oddly pleasant to fuck with him, to, to get information out of him that he can use in the way that he berates him. But uh, Neiman first introduces his father as a writer, uh, then a professor, then a high school teacher. And it's just this sliding. And we later learn that right, that Paul Reiser actually, you know, received some kind of teacher of the year award uh, at the at the family dinner scene. But uh, you you can you can tell that Neiman does not want to tell Fletcher that his dad is what he is. He is ashamed of his father. He understands that he's not going to find a better job than this. Probably he's an older man. This is where he is. This is where he will continue to fulfill his working career. And uh, we see in that dinner scene, too, like he's just so obsessed with these great drummers of history and he wants to be remembered. And uh, I mean, I'm sure I've mentioned how I feel about all that on the podcast before, just like what a poison pill all that shit is. But hey, he does a great drum solo <laughs> by the very end. He does. <laughs> I can tell you because of that drum solo at the end, if I let my eight year old who's hyper competitive watch this. He would be like, yeah, he was really good, and that he, that he would be like, he'd take the wrong lesson. I feel like be like, yep, yeah, that's what it takes. Sure, yeah. Uh, the timing of this movie, I think, is interesting. Uh, just the the fact that it was released in 2014, and like if it had been released two or three years later, I feel like it would be completely different. Um, you just, it's one thing to like show a misogynist, abusive guy in Fletcher. Uh but to make the movie not a like in 2017, 2018, like to make the movie featuring that guy, not about a woman that he has driven out of music or a woman trying to withstand his abuse as opposed to Neiman. Uh, it's, it's, it's just really hard to imagine uh, this kind of movie coming out uh, just, just a few years later. Am I crazy with that? Am I just thinking too hard about it? Hmm. Are you talking like, like Me Too type stuff? Yeah. I. I mean, I, yeah. I think if it was a couple of years later, it, there's a plausible like version of this movie that's touching on that subject, or it's read through that lens. It's definitely in the movie. Yeah. yeah. There's just there's we mentioned there's no women in his band in Fletcher's band. Um. There's one woman in the uh in the backup band that Neiman is initially in. And uh, Fletcher is just so dismissive. He's dismissive of everybody, but it, he's, he really seems extra dismissive of her. Yeah. And, and, and it trickles down to all, like the band members in his, in, in his, in Fletcher's band where uh, Neiman is like tricked into showing up early at the first practice and the rest of the band members show up they, they, with some kind of, I don't know, musician phrase, but it's got the word cunt in it, whatever the announcement is. And just like, this is how you're being introduced to these guys. And then Fletcher comes in later after them. So he's just like trained these guys uh, to be just, just extremely masculine, extremely competitive. And yeah, just to, to completely exclude women from that is okay. Like that's a fine movie, but just like, for the movie to also exclude women, I think is the thing that would be most different from uh, a later version of this movie. I mean, I could also see the the criticism, which is the most boring criticism that you see. I see on Twitter is that um, they this is an endorsement of uh, Fletcher. He gets the performance at the end. He does, which is supposed <laughs> to be ambiguous, it, like, but. You know, I don't. Like, it's like it, I mean, there's just this common trope of now. It's harder for these independent movies to continue to get good. Uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of this depends on word of mouth, and it's harder for them to get these good reviews when you have uh, dipshit dipshits out there who just think every character has to like be likable and agreeable. And if not, if you write a character, you're that's your worldview. Like. 
like everyone always jokes that Quentin Tarantino just wants to say the N word. Like there's that this stupid like I hear it all the time. That that's Quentin Tarantino obviously just says this in his spare time, and that's that's why he writes like mm-hmm. that. Which is just the most boring possible uh, criticism Take, yeah. of film in books and all all of them. So I mean, there's there's also that. Yeah. I, I mean the, the the ambiguity of it, and like the moral fuzziness is is kind of what makes Whiplash. A, a cut above. Fletcher gets some amount of comeuppance. Uh, he'll be okay. Uh, Neiman, you know, gets the unseen look from Paul Reiser that he's just going to continue with this mono monomaniacal path until until he suffers a psychic break, like the guy who killed himself, the other musician who killed himself, or maybe he becomes as great as he wants to be. It's it's all totally uh, ambiguous by the end of it. I don't think it's ambiguous if the final solo is good. I think it. I think judging by Fletcher's reaction, it is in fact good. Yeah, it's not the great. band reaction. I think. Yes. Is. Yeah. I think he, he Neiman does bring everyone along. Um. Yeah, and maybe it was so good that he was able to make everyone forget that. As far as the crowd was concerned in the first number, he didn't understand how to read music. And he also tackled <laughs> Fletcher and beat the shit out of him <laughs> at an earlier performance. So, hey, yeah, maybe that's just going to be part of his myth and his legend, like with the throwing the symbol at Charlie Parker. Uh, any? Are we missing anything on, on Whiplash? I would, I would just ask, like, where did, does this rank highly and where does it rank? Uh, if it does rank highly, where does it rank in your like your best endings of a movie? Uh, I, I I saw that you put this in the agenda that I was unable to to bring up because um, this computer's uh, put in a lot of good service over the years, <laughs> and a restart usually works, but it didn't tonight. Uh, couldn't open up the agenda, but I did see that you put a lot of I, I assume it was you. You put a lot of like twist endings. I mean, that's just kind of I was just like look you know Google real quick what are, what are sure. the best movie endings, but. Yeah, and like those are, um, yeah, like internet aggregators. They, they love sure. they love they love their twists, and and their spoilers and all that and all that stuff. Um, I don't. It is it's a very good ending. I'd have to I'd have to really think about it. Um, honestly, I mean this is this is film snobby of me, of me, but I can't stop thinking of the movie Phoenix, which I know that Pierce you have seen. Uh, have. That's a great ending. Um. Yeah, I need to think more about it. Do you think it's better than um, the ending? Uh, which was it called? Uh, with the bunnies. Oh, the favorite. Favorite. <laughs> I mean, the lobster has the great ending of Hugo Slanthimos's movies, which I, I still have not seen. Okay, so then I won't go on favorite, about it. Favorite. But I think that is a perfect. I think the lobster has a perfect mm-hmm. ending. Uh, favorite. Uh, I mean, it doesn't bother me so much, but it. Uh, I think it's a perfectly. I think it's a fine ending. Uh yeah, Pierce, you got anything? Anything that comes to mind? We just watched I mean, There Will Be Blood last month. That's a good ending. It's a pretty good ending. Um, is this the best ending ever? Uh, n- no, but it's certainly good. And I think um, to Shane's point too, like it's a, it's a pretty um, what's the word? Like compact, like kind of a an ergonomic, like perfectly succinct movie. Like there's not. Like you said, like there's not really wasted time, and I think it does a really good job of building to this huge. I don't know what the musical term would be, like the crescendo, like this end, this, this huge yeah. monumental ending. Uh, it definitely works. It's definitely very good. I don't know where it would rank on a list per se. Um, better, I, I would say better than the favorite. Sure. If that's the if that's the metric, that, that's that's a joke. I hate that I, ending. So I couldn't bad. get Phoenix out of my head. What was the first thing that popped into your head? Phoenix is pretty great. Oh, is the best. I mean, like, as far as like a twist ending goes, like the Usual Suspects is always what I I, I remember watching that for the first time and it, it blew my mind. But then, like actual like devastating like sit in the theater alone ending. Um, that's a tough one. I don't know if I have a. a top of my head answer yeah i'd have to bring up my extensive spreadsheet 
Yeah. It's not ranked by endings, but it's just like there's <laughs> every movie I've seen for the last 20 years or so. Right. So, I mean, so you, uh, Citizen Kane and uh, The Graduate were also on that list. The Graduate's a strong contender. Yeah. The Graduate is like the best of a certain type of ending, which is like yeah. the ambivalent ending, like, you know, leave it up to you ending. Uh, this is the side effect of writing everything down, that uh, it all leaves <laughs> your brain. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've got the succinct list written somewhere, but uh, written, and then it and then it leaves to be filled up with you know whoever the fuck knows what else. Uh, the names of the players on my basketball team. I'm filling that up very slowly. Uh, our next movie is uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, oh shoot! I don't have the year in front of me. I believe this is 1975, directed by Terry Gilliam. The first movie from the Monty Python crew, which consists of uh, English comedians like uh, John Cleese and Eric Idle and uh, Terry Gilliam, the director, and uh, several other guys whose names I don't have off the top of my head. Um, I think the most important first question is: What is your relationship to Monty Python? And like, when did you first become aware of these guys, Shane? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I knew of them. I never watched until I got to college and just bought the DVD and watched of it. the of the Holy Grail. Of the Holy Grail. Okay, Pierce firmly in my wheelhouse. Gotcha. Um, my my dad's a big Monty Python fan, so he showed us the movie when we were young, as just like uh, this is you know this is like one of the funniest movies ever. And I remember as a kid enjoying it. And then, you know, over I've seen some other, like, I've seen some of the other movies. I've seen some of the, like, I remember him. I, I think really when it clicked for me as a kid was he pulled up the, what is it? Is it the Department of Funny Walks? Do you know, is that the sketch? I am not going to be able to answer that question. Okay. It's, yes. Well, it's from the, it's a sketch from the TV show. You go watch it if you want. It's like, it's pretty mm. funny. Um, but that if, was like. If, if you don't find that funny, John, I, I, yes. I'm going to question our friendship. It's hmm. solid. Yeah, it's like the the genesis of all British comedy seems like it comes from that one sketch, probably. But um, but I, he like showed me that as a kid, and I remember finding it funny and goofy and like absolutely just silly. And and I think over the years, like my you know, I'm not I wouldn't say I'm like a Monty Python like head or anything. Like I I, I like this movie, and I like I think they're funny. But um, around college, I started when I studied literature, like. And I started reading Chaucer like this, especially Holy Grail takes on like a whole new meaning because it really is it is really a direct spoof of a lot of that stuff. Mm. Um, but that's like the the nerdier side of, you know, this, I guess, like you don't need to know Chaucer to find this funny. But um, it's certainly this movie especially is like one of the pro- you could certainly make the arguments like one of the classic comedies of, and one of the great comedies ever made for sure. I, although, John, I think you're going to shit on that apparently yeah have fun i i'm I'm, i mean if if the listener has read my review or has uh heard my tone at all as shane and pierce have talked about uh, monty python in these last few minutes uh i really i really didn't like this movie (laughs) i had seen uh maybe half of it maybe half of monty python at some point probably in college which would have been i mean you soak up you soak shit up through culture i couldn't say exactly like when i first uh encountered monty python um the simpsons i i did have a lot of encounters with the simpsons and 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 where i think my sense of humor or the, at least the stuff i find the funniest comes from uh the simpsons would definitely be high up there as long as well as like uh conan o'brien show um and i i never really detected a lot of that in there and uh Having watched the movie in its entirety for the first time, uh, definitely not. Uh, I, I I did laugh a few times at this. Uh, I I watched Life of Brian, which came out in 1979, uh, five years after this, or four years, um, and I hated that. I thought that had fucking nothing to say about anything, and actively irritated me. Uh, Monty Python wasn't that bad. It was better than that. <laughs> but I was also extremely irritated by it. I don't get these guys. I have no connection uh, from childhood to these guys. Uh, I'm kind of just taking it in as I'm seeing it. The coconuts are funny. 
that's kind of all I got. Mm. I don't, I don't like them. I don't like them as individuals. I don't like them as actors. I don't like them as comedians. <laughs> you are always walk around saying, um, "Kill the child." Well, you are strangle saying, him in the crib. You are saying more of that. Um, yeah. But you are always saying you prefer your nights at the round table to have a lot more come involved. I'm wiping on their their tunics. I mean, not up. zero. <laughs> some, some come. <laughs> so that's a green night. I'm sure everyone for the three people listening. I know. Yeah, I got there. Okay. I got there. I got it. It took me a second. Green night, great. Love the green night. Green night. A. Monty <laughs> Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, we're we're in the D's. We're being in the D's. Written, being wiped on your Who tunic. knows what's in the fucking mud that they think is so goddamn hilarious. Uh, I think these guys are ashamed of themselves is the kind of the the tone I get from it. They come from and and to be perfectly fair to the American equivalent, which like your National Lampoons, your Simpsons writing rooms, those guys primarily are Harvard Lampoon people who went to Harvard and went to the equivalent of an English elite school that all of the Monty Python people did, Cambridge or Oxford or whatever. I think they're ashamed of their fart jokes and uh, the 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 actor who plays women in all of these movies and probably the TV show skits as well. I think what they're most interested in are these terrible fucking high-level... Marxist discussions about what the ideal form of government is. I think it just fucking reeks of flop sweat. I think if they had to show anything to their professors, that would be it because they have no confidence in the rest of their fucking hacky bullshit. I really don't like Monty Python. I've all like this is the cliche about like a like a humorless girl in uh, in like a group of guys like, uh, you know, you don't belong because you don't like Monty Python. I'm a fucking humorless girl in a cliched uh, gaggle of dudes in some hacky sitcom. I just don't get these guys at all. I, I mean, I think about like Ready Player One, like I didn't read that book. And there's like apparently a whole part of that book where they just recite Monty Python lines. And I can think of no clearer uh, repulsive imp- repulsive uh, piece of writing <laughs> than someone just regurgitating Monty Python lines as like, oh, I'm in the cool group. These guys fucking suck. I mean, I, 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 I don't I don't. I, rem- that, I don't remotely agree uh, with most of that. Is, John, that is the most insane review I've ever heard. Yeah. yeah I, like, if you, like, you, like, like, you, you mentioned Ready Player One. Like, what are, what are you talking about? It's, it's just a, down, it's just downstream. Like, like the, the type of, of, of 80s nerd who liked this thing, like, who would memorialize it in this book about 80s culture being, like, the greatest thing ever. Like, as if this is, yeah, that sounds fine. The '80s. I think we can all agree we're a terrible decade. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, this isn't the '80s exactly, but uh, that some greasy nerd who grew up in the '80s would pop a fucking boner over Monty Python. Like, yeah, that makes sense to me. I, you were bullied for a reason, nerd. So, <laughs> I, you know, I don't think this is a completely tight movie. That's yeah, fine. I mean, I, I looked up the timeline of, like, when Mel Brooks is doing his stuff, which I, I'm also same. not a tremendous fan of, but it is the same time. Like, Blazing Saddles came out a year before this. I don't really feel, like, and I think comedy's always aged the worst of all Of, of all course. Genres. Everything is destined for to be it, hacky and iterated and right. imitated and it's re- until it's yeah, imitated, totally yeah. just, just destroyed and useless. But I do, what I do like about this, this isn't just, I mean, this, like, there's the, the, the silliness, the absurdity of the movie. Uh, you know, the of the Black Knight or, you know, but it's also I feel like it's probably it's trying to say a couple things here. And I think you're not giving enough credit. I know you make fun of the Marxist shit, but I don't know, like the first time if you're an 18 year old, you know, or 16 year old boy watching this for the, you know, and you have a scene where the woman's not obviously a, she's obviously not a witch, but a bunch of dudes are condemning her. That can actually make you think a little bit. Uh, and if you, this is, this could be the first, like, you know, they are, I think they're ashamed, not of the fart jokes. I think they're ashamed of the British people and how uptight they are and how 
regal they find themselves in yes. when in reality like they're so they're overdoing the filth and the mud and the bring out your dead mm-hmm. to show like these were not fucking good times we're gonna make fun of it we're gonna make it i wrote comedy. about this in my review uh that that whole idea is getting like a reevaluation where like it if you if you were a small child that was a bad time to, to be alive <laughs> if you were like three or four your life is in serious danger sure if you're 10 it's more or less fine you're gonna probably live until you're like 60 and uh, the medieval times are not as you know it, it that that idea which i haven't read too terribly much into because because i'm just as susceptible to it like it's flattering to uh like post-enlightenment uh western world if we can imagine, you know, history in a straight line of of just constant improvement, constant improvement. Right. I'm like, yeah, fine. You know, our, the babies aren't dying in the same frequency. That's good. It's good that every parent isn't like mourning their children. But as far as like uh, the self congratulatory nature of that idea, that uh, everything was, you know everything was hell a thousand years ago and think I would live in today and we're just continuing to march forward, even though we're not actively moving towards it just happens naturally. Uh, that I lump in with Monty Python, I think, the self-congratulatory nature of that, like that, that fits them like a fucking glove. I think, I think you're offended because, of because, because this you're, is like no. one of the all time greatest comedies. And I laughed like two times no. again, the coconuts work because you're a, a, a Francophile and you're ashamed Deeply ashamed. Privately they won. Ashamed. The French won. The movie's privately ashamed of them being smelly. All right, and it's clear that the, the medieval people were smelly, and you're just that's so probably true. But you know, and I, this is what you're trying. This is this is your revulsion to this movie because you're bringing it back to France again. The French get off fine in this movie. <laughs> uh, they, their castle is not is not breached. Uh, they retain. Whatever the Holy Grail is there, maybe it, who gives a fuck? Uh, yeah, yeah. I I I I I stopped this movie three times out of out of anger and had to come back to it three times. Uh, it just it just pisses. It just again again. Mel Brooks is doing the exact same thing in America, and it's he's doing it so much better. Maybe and 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 this is this is comedy. This is what comedy is. It's just my sensibility. It just doesn't work on me. That's yeah. Like if a comedy, like, I think this is. I have no warm memories yeah. associated with this movie. It just, it it it's playing, and all I'm bringing to it is, you know, moment to moment. Are these scenes working for me? Are these jokes landing? And the experience is no. The experience is absolutely fucking not. And and you know. Uh, this came up uh, when we were discussing David Fincher rankings and we were talking about Zodiac, like Pierce, your love of Zodiac and like mm-hmm. the takeaway from Zodiac um, where, uh, you know, your your pursuit of something that you're obsessed with, uh, maybe nobody gives a shit about it except for you. Your obsession doesn't give you the right to a conclusion or a result. Mm-hmm. That's all that it is. And... Uh, that Zodiac is a very good movie for my money, but uh, if that theme landed harder with me, the movie would be better. And it's not that that's a bad theme. It's not that that's a bad lesson. It's just that I had internalized that lesson, that theme, before I saw Zodiac. So Zodiac came later. So like all of the de-puffing of English royalty and like demythification of Arthur and all that stuff, I figure I've, you know, I figured out <laughs> that, you know, history's largely made up by the people who won and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it just has nothing to offer to me other than the comedy. If the comedy doesn't work, the movie is a complete and total failure. But you could see how this would be of course, someone's introduction to that. People still love this movie like the most recent round of film spotting uh madness where they they they've been doing like decade uh decade brackets in march and monty python on the holy grail i think made it to sweet 16 over a lot of great 70s movies i think it definitely made it out of the first i mean there there are part i don't there are parts of this i didn't care for uh, and it's been a while since i rewatched it Mm -hmm. but like just the 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 rabbit thing kind of yeah eh. 
I appreciate the meta-ness, a little bit of the of just, the drawing and that guy having a heart attack that usually works on me. This movie lost me from the credits where like an overzealous Norwegian guy keeps typing the credits as I whatever. The joke is so bad. I think it's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> that might have been my first break. Uh, not a fan. Not a fan. I mean, yeah, Pierce, you've called me insane, which is fine. Well, fine. I know I, I get what you're saying. I think <laughs> so on one level, I think like, I obviously agree that like comedy is the most subjective genre, probably. And so like if you don't find something funny, you like you don't find it funny. Like there's no mm-hmm. arguing that. Um, I think Mel Brooks is like the right comparison in that this movie is meant to be like a, a spoof. Right. It's meant to be a subversion, uh, especially like you're saying of like ideas of like chivalry and, and and royalty and hierarchy and like all that stuff that like permeates british culture and british history like that's absolutely what they're spoofing and so like if you don't i don't know if you don't if, you, if you're not buying into that in this movie like that's the whole idea right or like if you have no again like no interest in their spoof of like arthurian you know tales like that's what this whole movie is um so that's fine. Like, yeah, not, I mean, I, it's I, the I 70s. It. Just, they just seem late to that to that specific I guess thing. so. I don't know. The, Brit- the British sensibilities of it, I think, is, like, what would be the biggest barrier entry for most people. Sure, yeah. I appreciate that, like, I saw that as a kid. Because, it, like, I think it opened, kind of opened me up to, like, a different form of comedy. You know, like, like now I'm not, I'm not the biggest, like, British comedies, like, fan. But, like, you know, I've watched stuff like the IT crowd or, like, um you know big, big facts quiz and stuff like that and like you kind of see where like this the influence of this has landed and like i do like it so mm-hmm. I, you know it i i yeah, it's fine if you don't find it funny but it certainly is like i i get why it's so beloved yeah i think like the other strain of it would be like ricky gervais in the office well I like guess a you know he's got his own axe to grind he thinks he also thinks he's so smart but uh, as far as like being the polar opposite of Monty Python, yeah, as far as like British comedy goes. And like, you know, talk about the French again. Like, if you sat me in front of like a Jerry Lewis French movie where it's just him crossing his eyes for 90 minutes, <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure I would fucking hate that too. Uh, everybody's got their own sensibility <laughs> when it comes to comedy. Right. And just Monty Python, uh, oh my, yeah, it just could not, could not be further, could not be further from, from mine. Uh, anything else before I think we say goodbye to Pierce and move on to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? Uh, I, I don't know. The North African swallow, that's one of the funniest parts of the movie. If you didn't laugh at that. Uh, yeah. Nothing. Fucking nothing. nothing. Black Knight nothing? Uh, the Black Knight, I, I, I have seen that a lot. Uh, that just made that, the rounds. Yeah. So, counting, counting, the counting to three. Right, yeah. I'm fucking yeah. That's deep. That's deep. Run away. Uh, oh, oh. The, away. the scene that I think made me the angriest were the knights who say me, which is just <laughs> a series of fucking nonsense words. See, as a Hilarious. kid, that hits. Like, when yeah, you see that yeah. as a kid, that's that's like one of the things you remember. But I, I totally buy that. It infuriated me. <laughs> it, uh, I believe that is one of, uh, that is D, D Landry's, one of his favorite scenes yeah yeah we're missing probably money but i think this was on drew's list so uh yeah we're missing its biggest defender but again and it would just come down to like i think this is hilarious i do not yeah so yeah there we go uh that'll do us for uh, money python on the holy grail i mean pierce you can stick around if you want to hear me ramble about fear and loathing for a little bit Yes, and like I said before, John, I do have thoughts on Johnny Depp, and yes, I will, yes, I will right. espouse those uh, without any hesitation, and you cannot edit me, and if you edit me out of the podcast, I will uh, come for you legally. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll, I'll stick around. That's okay, yeah. great. I knew, I had, when we mentioned Usual Suspects, I had a flash of something, and that was what it was. Here's <laughs> <Pierce laughs> wanted to talk about Cancelled Men. Uh, okay. Uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is another Terry Gilliam movie from 1998, adapted from uh, Hunter S. Thompson, Thompson's eponymous, uh, or I don't know, it's a book, right? 
It's a book that was turned into, yes. or it was a magazine article that was turned into a book. Uh, adapted from that, he's in the movie briefly. Uh, Johnny Depp stars as the Hunter S. Thompson equivalent, Raul Duke, and uh, Bene- uh, an overweight Benicio del Toro, a gloriously overweight Benicio del Toro, plays uh, his companion, Doctor Gonzo. Uh, have you have you seen Fear and Loathing, Pierce? Mm, no, but I know Hunter S. Thompson fairly well, so it's. Have you read Fear and Loathing? No, but I've read his. I've read other stuff he's written. Okay, yep. Shane. Seen it once. Okay. It's been, I'm a little fuzzy, so... I did rewatch this movie. I, I rewatched the glorious Criterion Edition uh, Blu-ray that's sitting on my shelf as we speak. Uh, I didn't get into the many commentaries or special features, which I'm sure are delightful. Uh, I mean, if we're talking about Terry Gilliam movies... What a wild... I'm just looking at Terry Gilliam's filmography. It's, a pretty, yeah, it's, it's pretty wacky. It's all over the place. Yeah. It's wild. Uh, this one, for my money, is just head and shoulders exponentially better by about two by two whole grade levels better than uh, Monty Python on the Holy Grail. Uh, just a, 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 a drug crazed road trip type of movie that uses a lot of uh, effects that, you know, I don't intend to go for those things, but I think they I think they work pretty well here. Dutch angles and, and fish eyes and that kind of stuff, as, as well as. Uh, skewed perspectives and fucking with the with the sound levels and all that. It's like I, I feel like it's a very not you know being super experienced with uh, various hormones plucked from adrenal glands. Uh, the the pharmaceutical use of those or uh, you know heavy heavy hallucinogen use. I don't know what that's like. Do I kind of feel like I know what it's like after seeing Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? Maybe a little bit. I don't know. I feel like Johnny Depp probably knows his way around a mushroom uh, or, or mescaline or whatever else they're doing. The extensive amount of things that they're doing in this movie. Uh, a lot of narration in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, as there kind of must be, as it is an ad- adaptation of, a, of like an iconic American journalist. I think this does it about as good as it possibly can because Johnny Depp, who, or Raul Duke, who does the narration is immediately like uh, tipped as someone who is wildly untrustworthy. He's like swatting imaginary bats as they're driving from LA into into glorious Las Vegas. Uh, as a picture of, I'm kind of just gonna do a monologue here. You guys should jump in <laughs> if anything comes to mind. Uh, as a picture of Las Vegas, uh, not flattering. I think, and this has happened to me. And Shane, you can speak to it. I think anyone who goes to Vegas long enough eventually comes to dislike it. Uh, I'm pretty squarely in that zone. I'll probably go back one more time in my entire life. Uh, The the ratty Chinese buffet that I might have gone to and never did, and it gets turned into an M&M store. It's kind of the old story. It's not that I started going in like a period of time when it was non-corporatized. It was. uh, The waitresses at the Excalibur were still wearing like medieval... Uh, uniforms, and the and the ones at the Luxor were Egyptian style. They don't do that anymore. Sure, but uh, man, that post recession time, glorious. The, <laughs> yeah, I I think it's a, a. Um, I know you're not a Bill Simmons. Well, I don't know if you are a Bill Simmons fan. I know you're I, I I like him well enough. And it was popular not to like him, so uh, mm. which is silly. But I don't know. I feel like a lot of that comes from sports. First and foremost, yeah, he's he, fine. He, he has weird movie opinions and he talks about movies strangely, but he talks about how he doesn't really like going to Vegas anymore. Hmm. And he's going to Vegas before me, so I assume it's just what everyone kind of does is kind of get over Vegas because Vegas is supposed to be this like freeing, and then you can do it so many times and you're hung over for three days afterwards. Mm-hmm. I haven't hit that point where I'm sick of it, maybe it's because I have kids and it's a nice escape. Uh, and I feel I do actually do relax there because I feel like I can be a little uptight here and stressed out. So I haven't hit that point with Vegas yet. Yeah. Uh, Raul Duke and Dr. Gonzo uh, maybe never experienced a, a period of I like being here. Uh, the picture that they paint of Vegas, uh, both in the writing and in this movie, is uh, a place where all hope and joy goes to die. It is just filled with. Uh, the worst that America has to offer. It, I mean, it doesn't help that they're they're extremely 
chemically addled as they're like wandering around everywhere. But like as a convention town that just pulls in all these people and as a tourist town that pulls in all these people, uh, this movie has disdain for people that go to Vegas. And I, I am curious to read Fear and Loathing um, because I'm sure I'm sure that is also in there. It must be. Uh, well, I think Hunter S. Thompson has disdain for everybody. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, like he was like the original Gen X before, and he was not Gen X. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the thing that th- this is a fu- I, I do think this is mostly a fun movie and a funny movie uh, that has a lot to offer, but. The thing that I watched it for most on this last rewatch, this is like the second or third time, the third or fourth time that I've seen uh, this movie, um, was what it thinks about like the death of the dream type uh, 60s story. This takes place in 1971. And uh, I knew that that was a big uh, focus point of the movie or focal point of the movie. But uh, the first couple of times you see it, you're like kind of overwhelmed with all the drugs they do and all the trippy camera stuff. Um I know why the 60s, at least in Hunter S. Thompson's telling, didn't work. It's because they were so shitty to service people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, they, like, I think you say that like this was this. I think this might be why I this movie just didn't really. I was underwhelmed because I expected. Mm-hmm. I think I had a pedestal as well because all the people who loved it, possibly for the wrong reasons. We I mean, a total flop when it came out. Um, although we had friends, we have friends yeah. who just absolutely love this movie, right? So it's one of those kind of cult following movies. Mm-hmm. But I just, I had such a hard time liking anyone in the movie. Mm-hmm. They're all deeply yeah. unlikable. They, they have complete disdain for everybody that they're around. Uh, Duke and Gonzo both. They are Gonzo is violent. <laughs> like yes. he is ready. He'll whip out a gun and a knife in a moment's notice. Uh, and it's it's just it's 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 all drugs. It's just all the their version of freedom is the freedom to do drugs. They have no interest in any kind of improvement that doesn't involve drugs. And uh, Hunter, like the 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 narration about like God, what happened? There was like this brief period where we could have changed things, but then he flashes back and like he flashes back to a scene where he's just snorting like LSD off of some hippies sleeve that he spilled it on. It's just all, it's, it's all, um, it's all middle-class chemical. And, uh, they, they treat waitresses and maintenance people so horribly that they're never going to convince anyone that hey maybe these guys know what they're talking about. <laughs> I mean they're they're pre pre Tea Party libertarians. Yeah, basically yeah. that's it. This this was the Libertarian Party before the Tea Party. Yeah, like a, a comp of this movie is something like Inherent Vice, which I I think is 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 a better movie uh, that comes at the death of the '60s and in like a in a in a more of an economic angle. More of a like a, a non-offensive drug taking angle, uh, not as aggressive as Duke is, and and Gonzo are. Uh, I like that message better. I like that take better. But this is just about as cynical as it can get, which is probably good coming from a cynical person. Uh, to get into Johnny Depp, really strong physical performance from Johnny Depp uh, as he. This movie kind of like founds the QAnon thing. I would not be surprised at all if whoever you know Q is in real life uh, was watching Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and was like Adrenochrome, huh? Fascinating, and and built this whole conspiracy around that uh, totally made up thing. Like no one actually does Adrenochrome here nor there. But uh, when Johnny Depp is sampling the Adrenochrome and he's like. He's just doing all this physical business. Often, I find that annoying. I really enjoy it here. Johnny Depp, uh, capable of turning in a good performance. Pierce, what do you think about that? Um, you know, <laughs> actually, like all jokes aside, I really don't like Johnny Depp as an actor. Uh, obviously, as I think person, that's perfectly fair. Yeah, seems like a bad guy. But even before that, like I, I, I've really come to learn that like I just don't like any of the Tim Burton movies. Really, like that's just mm-hmm. not my thing. Yeah, and uh, I picked up 
blank check the podcast mm-hmm. long after they started it. So I'm in uh, early 2019 uh, in their run of podcasts. <laughs> and they, they recently wrapped up the Tim Burton stuff and just they are really struggling to get through the, we'll say, last 10 movies that he made. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's even the good ones I don't. The ones that are supposed to be good. Really, like not even like a, like a Scissor Hands or an Ed Wood. The kind of stuff that people say is like pretty unanimously like the best stuff that he ever did. I, yeah, I think like the even the good ones are just fine. Like those are both fine, but the bad ones are really bad. Mm-hmm. And the kind of like I don't even know what you would call it, but like the kind of the type of performance that Johnny Depp gives both in those movies, and I feel like he kind of chases that in other works too. It's like. I just never liked it, really, and I just find him... I guess, like, Jack Sparrow is the exception, maybe. Like, that first movie is good, and, and that character is good. It gets mm-hmm. beat to death with, like, however many sequels they made. But um, I think the character of Hunter S. Thompson, too, is one that, like... Again, this kind of, like, gonzo over the top. I, I, I haven't seen it, but I just always have this impression that, like, I will not like this, I think, in part because it is just another over-the-top Johnny Depp performance, which is, like... From an actor who I, yeah. who I don't like, you know, so so I've just always not been drawn to this. And then, like, even off Harris Thompson as a figure, I feel similarly where, like, you know, I was when I read I read some of his pieces back in high school because I was so into journalism at that time. And and I teach it now, I guess. So I still am. But like he like that, like I and I don't think this is maybe accurate to who he really was or his writing, but just like the perception of him as a figure of like the drug use and the gonzo journalism and being like, that's what, that's what this is. It's like, you got to go out there and just experience everything. And you got to have the craziest experience and you just write about it on mescaline. And like, that's, I just never, I, I never like, you know, I never really like connected with that. And You're not recommending your students, uh, you know, <laughs> it wouldn't well, prove that, honestly, the shit pipe at Druid Hills. Uh, <laughs> it would, it wouldn't prove their writing. So maybe, but um, but it definitely like I feel like that is like a real idolized like like just like persona that I just never felt really was authentic to like actual pe- I don't know like I never connected with that so I just never really was drawn to him or this movie or this type of storytelling I guess so that's always where my distance has been but um, mm-hmm. I think inherent vices you were describing the movie was what I was thinking about. Um, and it certainly feels like I, I enjoy that movie and its themes and what it talks about. So, like, if you know that, if that's a connecting point, that's good, I guess. Yeah, it, it's just it's a softer take on this period, and and yeah, I, I think it's reasonable to assume that you would not like this movie yeah. based on uh, their unlike. I, I think Benicio del Toro is 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 fantastic, and he, he's so he, I think he's great. In, in this movie. Uh, that's one hundred percent accurate. Deeply unlikable also. Yes. But so committed. And not just in like a I gained weight for the role way, just e- extremely precise in his uh, psychotic movements. And and, and oddly, um, a tremendous amount of fun to watch, even as he's uh, doing a lot of weird shit. Like, like, like Johnny Depp is quirky, like his movements are more quirky. Yeah, he's and, doing and like, like like autistic flapping a, yeah, a lot of times. Yeah, very and, floppy yeah. arms. Uh, or yeah, yeah. And he, yes, he's the one. He's the one who takes ether and like and and does like a, a splayed limb uh, stumble through a casino. That's what it's just. It's just different. It's just different, and it actually seems so much more believable. Great. He makes great use of his belly. It's perhaps the best belly acting that's ever been portrayed on screen. I can't think of a. A comparison, but it, it, it's it's great belly acting. They really plucked every single hair out of his belly, <laughs> and he and he's swinging it around at every opportunity. Uh, kind of all I got about Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, a fun movie, and I, maybe I should torture myself with with a commentary from Johnny Depp about it. That sounds horrible. <laughs> that does sound. He seems bad. like so he like I, like I am up and down with like the, and I was just looking at some of Tim Burton stuff and like this. Yeah, I like, he gave I like up. Depp, he gave, like, he gave I like up. Depp and Eating Gilbert Grape. I thought sure. Or what's Eating Gilbert Grape? And like I, the few things I like him, but then 
also remember going to the movie theater to see Sleepy Hollow and thinking I love. I just bought Sleepy Hollow uh, on physical media. I, I think I love. I love Sleepy Hollow. Hated that one. So much fun. Uh, yeah. I'm just looking at some of the other ones they did here with. Yeah. I don't know, like the the Charlie and Charlie. Uh, yeah, him and him like, and Burton both just don't give a shit. Sometimes, like people, I feel like they get so famous that no one tells them no anymore. Sure. Right. I mean, I think we all know that. I think that I have. And, I didn't read any of those like Vanity Fair or whatever pro- profiles of Johnny Depp. Uh, but what I soaked up was that he's just drunk all the time and yeah. lives a very sad life with his entourage. He's a drunk narcissist, yeah. Sure. And uh, I don't know, like, I mean, I guess if you're Tim Burton and you rattle off Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman, Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns, you probably get a little overconfident. Sure. Then you make, yeah, but even though Batman Returns sucks, by the way, but. Eh, I mean, yeah, that that episode was lost to the podcast gods, but uh, it's weird. It's it's an, it's an exhibition and someone trying to get fired. Yeah. Then you make Mars Attacks. Uh, I like okay. that one, though. Yeah, that one's all right. One. I did like that. Uh, that'll do us for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and this podcast. Um, we mentioned the Sight and Sound list earlier again. That'll be released two days after, or two days from the time of recording. Uh, it will be out by the time this is released on our podcast feed. Uh, but we'll... We'll do a podcast to discuss that list. You know, uh, was the French New Wave represented appropriately enough uh, of the two great Japanese directors who got more? Uh, which recent release? Which most recent release got on there from the last decade? Uh, my money's on. I don't know. I'm just really drawing a fucking blank. Embarrassing. Uh, I'm sure I had something. I don't know. The Emoji Movie. It's too late. I fucked it up. Anyways, uh, our next trio, we're moving away from the best of stuff and we're going back to, uh, you know, just whatever theme uh, is on the film release schedule. This next month, we're doing Guillermo del Toro movies. Uh, He's got a stop motion animated version or adaptation of Pinocchio coming out on Netflix in a few weeks uh, from from the time of recording. And uh, we paired that with uh, two of his other movies, uh, The Shape of Water and Pan's Labyrinth. We're talking about those, and, you know, the year is ending, so we'll assuredly get together to discuss some of our favorites from uh, 2020 or 2022 uh, movies and TV, both. In the meantime, you can check us out on the internet at MediaCommunity.club, like us on Facebook at MediaCommunity.club, and Twitter at MediaCommunity.club, and Instagram at MediaCommunity.club. Thank you for joining me tonight, guys. Thanks, John. See ya. Have a good night.